can't do this anymore. It's not going to work. But I wanted to do something for for a final uh, send-off. Because I just... So I um, had a real crisis this, this week. And I, I wrote a story. And I'm going to... I'm just going to read it instead of doing the regular podcast. And then that will wrap up the podcast that used to exist, but I just don't think it has a purpose anymore. Uh, um, It's very important to know if anybody ever does hear this. Uh, No person, place, or event is real. It is all fictional. What it is is basically me writing a story, trying to base it off of feelings I feel and um yes every like everybody draws on people places and things that they know so there might be a lot of familiar elements but it is not there's there's not a single thing in here that is true as far as the story goes uh it is a work of fiction it's also in its most raw state ever. Uh, I basically wrote it as therapy. I um, talked to a uh, veterans crisis counselor earlier this or I guess last week, and one of the things I agreed to do was that uh, I would I would focus on a project. But I bet I bet if they read this story they wouldn't have let me off at the end of our conversation. It's easy. Anyway, here's the story. It's really very, uh, like I said, unedited, unproofread. I haven't even read it through since I wrote it the other day. It's fictional, so here goes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to read it well, though. I'm just doing this because... Like, <clears throat> I Love You to Death by Jamie Ward I'm inclined to believe that my death wasn't the one that I deserved, but in fact every death is exactly how it was supposed to happen, how it's always been to happen. It was, in fact, my life that wasn't what was intended. The choices, paths, and every moment spent lingering on moments that felt important. When you take a journey, everyone is fixated on the destination, because that is where your work is done and you can rest. However, a journey is not a moment, but a story. The destination is only the end because you arrive there from somewhere else. The journey is truly what makes things important. Otherwise, it's just a place and we simply exist in a series of meaningless moments. This is what we cling to so hard? Fearing death, but never fully embracing living. Like I said, my death did not seem fair but it was perfect. My life was not how it was supposed to be. We were in love. We were supposed to kiss and laugh. One day we'd buy a house. She said she didn't want to have a child, but I hoped that once we moved into a house that was clearly built for more than the two of us, nature would kick in. I would write my book. We would make art. We would make love. We would create and destroy beautiful moments in the world until there was no more left for us to manipulate and we would be together forever. When we first met, it was like we'd known each other forever. 
If only I had known that our killer actually had known us both forever. How could I know the merciless courier of our tragic fate who arrived to me as the most beautiful, intelligent, and charming young woman I'd ever seen, and to her a handsome, young, strong man who appeared to her as the answer to the question that she had yet to ask? We did not know, we didn't think to protect ourselves. Because when you're in love, you feel so strongly that you don't fear death. When you're not afraid, that is when you're most vulnerable. When you're not looking for danger, lost in the bliss of soul grazing, that is when it hunts, like a wolf to a stray sheep. It is when you've wandered from the path that it comes to take you for its own. The first year was perfection. Though we were both older, it felt like a holiday spent in youth. Every moment in each other's company swelled with an excited nervousness like a first crush in little school, yet with the passion of aged lovers. Each glance at her was like seeing her for the first time, and it was returned a thousand times stronger. The second year was spent as if our love existed in a single body. The endless fuck that was our existence was passionate, dangerous, and burned with an intensity of rage and the pleasure of a divine truth. For what felt like 365 days straight, I could not identify the outline of her body because I was a part of it so completely that to feel her was to feel myself. Skeptics say that after two years, feelings of being in love fade, but skeptics also once believed that the world was flat and it was the center of the universe. If I could ever be called a skeptic, it would solely be because that third year, we were the center of each other's glorious universe. Her glorious breasts illuminating the mornings like sunrises, and I lay my head beside hers each night with the certainty and calm of sunset. No, the third year, love did not retreat. It charged boldly and recklessly into the battlefield of life. Year four was my favorite, along with all the other years. I bought her the house that she'd always dreamed of. It was simple, but it was ours. It had more bedrooms than we needed, but I said I'd use one as an office. That's where I was planning to write my novel, but I had already made plans with myself where I would work when, one day, there would be a need for that room far greater than my career ambitions. Things were good. We were happy. And after what felt like a long journey through the start of life, we were finally home, together, in our perfect forever. I set out to start writing my novel, and she took a job. One of the things I loved about her was that she was smart with the innocence of a child, but the ingenuity and drive of an adult. We both were better off than we ever dreamed we'd be, but our love pushed us both to be better than who we were as individuals, and we soon realized that despite how neatly all our pieces fit at the moment, we could do more. She would support me while I finished my novel, my masterpiece, and I knew that once my gift was given to the world, that then my muse and I would be able to live not just in the safety we felt at the moment, but true luxury. She was not just the muse of my stories, but the muse of my story. There is a reason great writers often have sought shelter and solitude while they write. It's not out of sheer selfishness, but it is to protect themselves. For the world and it Life itself is the enemy of writing. With each moment of time that passes, eternity laughs at the victory it has won in the little battles of pages unwritten, 
pictures unpainted, and plays unacted. This is why many of the great writers have chosen to go into the woods, travel the rails, or lock themselves in the attic to shut out all the distractions that would stop writing. Life is like a crashing ocean, and each word written is like trying to take a handful of sand from the bottom of the sea. Wave after wave will try to tear them from your hands, because sand is not meant to sit still for people to admire. It is meant to move with the ebb and flow of the tides, pulled by the very orbit of the universe itself. My office was my island, where I would maroon myself every day and transcribe the story that life had fated me to tell. It was my purpose, and I loved to exist there. And it was made all the more wonderful, because every night I would be rescued by my love. We would nurse one another back to health with our love and shared slumber, and return to the next morning, embarking on our daily hero's quest in order to return to one another. By the end of the year, I was halfway through my manuscript, and she had progressed swiftly in her job. She was no longer just a teacher, staying several lessons ahead of her students, but a true scholar in her field. Her love of literature made educating young minds not just a job, but a calling that she answered, and I was proud to know that others would be inspired as she inspired me. The world would be more beautiful because she was in it, but I still saw it already as the most beautiful, because she was it. It was the beginning of the sixth year when the plan of our murder first instigated. Even with retrospect, I don't think I or anyone for that matter could have stopped it. Like I said at the beginning, it is life that is dumb enough to give us choice to choose how we want to live, but death is wiser and far more cruel of an architect wiser by far than any philosopher, scientist, or man of God who is foolish enough to ever live. I don't mean to infer that living life is a mistake, quite the opposite. Life is not the mistake. The error is fundamental to being human. Humans are dumb enough to fear the unknown, which shows equal promise of pleasure as it does pain, yet we cling to what we do know, despite the continual evidence that life can be the most punishing I felt safe in my writing, which was nearing completion. But like that old saying goes, complacency kills. And that was my first mistake. I thought that by shutting out the world and being left to my own was the fastest way to finish my writing. I had forgotten that even Jesus had gone out alone in the desert, and that is where he first stood face to face with the devil. And this oasis of creativity that I visited each day is where I was about to first make acquaintance with the fallen. People are often surprised to learn that the ultimate apex predator is not a lion, a polar bear, or even a shark. It is the African wild dog, which is not an actual dog, but more like a desert wolf. They're small, they hunt in packs, they have big silly ears, and most animal lovers might actually find them rather adorable. The reason they're so dangerous is because they hunt tirelessly in packs, often exhausting their prey, which is usually much larger than they are, and like many predators, they're predisposed to taking out prey that is already weak or ill. People also often are surprised at the notion that man is not an apex predator. This is due to the fact we don't need to eat other animals to live. We can subsist off of fruits, vegetables, and other sources of nutrition. Humans are not predators. We don't need to kill, and yet we do, all the time. 
This is what makes the murder of my wife and I so troubling. It was decided for us that, without our consent, we were hunted and deprived the opportunity to fade away as our bodies slowly failed us. And yet, perhaps, we still were responsible, not by choice, but by involuntary obligation. I'll explain. First off, I'm very aware and embarrassed by the fact that the story of my death is not as eloquent or poetic as the description of my love. Love was an instinct, a necessity, a very fundamental feeling in a soul that I'm not even confident exists. But it must, at least in some form, because there is at least enough self-awareness to recount the story of our deaths. Deaths which I do not understand. Deaths which I find incomprehensible because they were not motivated like my love was for her, but of hatred for myself. A hatred which I thought her love could save me from. The biggest danger of a bad idea is that it doesn't always seem like a bad idea. Humans don't like to think of ourselves as animals, but like all living creatures, we were born with instincts that we can overcome to a degree, but it takes generations and whole societies to change even the smallest notion of what man is. When we were born, we were given fear. This apprehension is a feeling to guide undeveloped minds and to protect us from unknown threats. As we live and we learn, we gain the ability to discern the difference between those things that pose us real danger and those things that don't. The second thing we are born with is the tragic imperfection of being human. The body is a miraculous contraption that is so complex and perfect an idea that we can't even fully comprehend the complete nuance of it despite being it. Humanity has been studying the body since bodies have existed, and it still contains mysteries that science has yet to solve. To complicate matters further, it's controlled by the mind, whose intricacies are infinitely more puzzling and frustratingly less tangible. How does one study something that can't even be experienced by the senses? The greatest sin of man is that we truly believe that we can understand the mind because we're aware of our existence and yet question our own bodies, which exist for one purpose, and that is con to connect us to the world around us, to give us a channel with which to interact with our sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. I hope it's not disappointing that I'm no longer the wordsmith, waxing poetic about the love of my life, but you see, this is a tragedy. I feel all those things with every atom of my body, with every thought of my mind, yet not... Not every thought of my mind. My, my mind? How conceited am I to assume that this mind of mine belongs to me? Our bodies are alone from the library of time. The most human I can possibly be is to think that I am the apex predator of my life, parading through this existence, hunting, adventure, and love. We are simply passengers on a train, and we've mistakenly committed ourselves to belonging to the car in which we sit, while the locomotive itself shows no similar loyalty to its non-existent track. Is it a coincidence that to control our own thoughts, we call keeping our thoughts on track? What if there is no track? The day I met the devil was 
not an ominous morning. It was actually rather exciting because I was almost through with the last few pages. I estimated there were 50 or so to go. This would be my first novel I finished. Something I wish I had known before I started writing is that just because the beginning comes easy does not entitle me to finish it at the same pace I started out on. This is not necessarily a bad thing. It can indicate progress. A writer probably knows where they want to go, and the difference between a writer and an aspiring writer is that there's that commitment to starting. Similarly, the difference between a lazy writer and a throw writer is a willingness to change everything for the sake of improvement. Maybe the ending is harder because the story that I was building fleshed out and the characters created more depth than I had originally planned. This is a good thing. It meant that my finished product would be better than the merely decent idea that I had started with. Writing is art. And just like there are differences between a decent writer and a great writer, so too are there differences between someone who creates art and someone who creates great art. My excitement was growing at the idea my art was almost complete. But what was also growing was the very reasonable realization that this, being my first novel, perhaps it would not be the crowning achievement of my career I hoped it would be. That was okay. It was still very good. I am, after all, a prideful enough to believe that I was blessed with a gift worth of sharing. So this wasn't going to be Dickens or Plath. It would be the first of many, though. I was so close. In fact, my sin of pride made me think that the body of what was written already was so good, maybe I should just finish the end as fast as possible, because even if the final 50 pages was disappointing, it would still be better than what so many others would ever write, and then I could start on the next one. Do you realize how long it's been since I mentioned the love of my life? I did. No. The novel needs to be perfect, because I was writing it for her. She was my muse. I needed to make the ending great, so she could see how much I loved her. I was actually kind of embarrassed how distracted from writing my book, letting my thoughts wander about thoughts of predators and nature and mind. But isn't great writing just a written depiction of thoughts? And aren't the best books truly vulnerable personal journeys into the nature of humanity? Surely it can't be counterproductive to let one's mind ponder on such philosophical questions if I was trying to be a great writer. This is when I realized that I can't even stay on track telling the story of how we died. Maybe the book that I was writing wasn't nearly as good as I thought it was. The story of my then of our lives is a very short story. My book was an epic modern-day twist on classic literature, greatest tales told through the lens of modern-day protagonists. It probably wasn't nearly as good as I thought. The worst part about being creative is the doubt that can haunt just as strongly as inspiration can motivate. I wasn't just thinking about... What if the last few pages weren't good? What if I devoted the last year more than a year of my life to something that no one could ever love? I loved what I was writing. I loved it more than anything. But what if the woman I loved didn't? I had full control of every word, every line, every thought. If I wasted precious moments investing in flawed ideas, moments that could have been spent loving her, how can I trust my thoughts? There is no way that my mind could betray me to that degree. A moron can't write a book, let alone write the beginning of one. I mean, they, 
they could technically write a bad one, I suppose. I've read plenty of bad books. Most books are bad. Most people are stupid. Does that mean people who write bad books did not know they were writing bad books? That seems like a pretty deep observation. There's no one someone that could realize that fundamental truth could be dumb enough to write a bad book. Maybe a less great one. That wasn't right. If, if this very story could fall apart, then most likely that story I was writing was far more broken than I realized. The recollection of my death has become as derivative as 50 movies and stories I can think of off the top of my head. Narrating the story of my murder? I should have started with my body being found face down in a pool with a gunshot wound to my back. I did not turn out to be the writer that I had dreamed of. What if I was not the lover that I always thought I was? Looking back, I, perhaps I didn't meet the devil that day because the devil doesn't exist. How could he? He couldn't exist because angels don't exist. They were an attempt by humans to rationalize things we couldn't explain with our minds, skipping the whole notion that we can't even explain our own minds. We can't explain why people who have had near-death experiences feel like the moment before they meet, their fate has lasted far longer than the actual time that passes during the event. Some people even claim to experience an abridged trip through their entire lives. There is no rhyme or reason to how we experience time. We're not in control of our minds. This is why my death may have taken longer than I seem to remember, but the moments I'm sure of must have transpired this way. I failed. I failed at my purpose. I failed to love through my life's work. I've, I've wasted a considerable amount of her life on the promise of a future I don't have the power to create. I felt the only way to fix the problem that I'd created, the problem that she didn't even know about yet, was to protect her from me. She was perfect, and I was flawed. It would hurt her. It would probably hurt her a lot, but she'd be spared the pain that she didn't even know could exist if I didn't get off this train. Everyone dies eventually. I want to leave her being angry with me, not sad. For some reason, people think that anger is an active feeling that we create with our emotions, while sadness is one that happens to us. They're probably more closely related than we'd like to admit to ourselves, but so many times anger feels like the the duller of the two blades that we can cut our wrists with. Never mind the fact that a swift, sharp blade would result in the far less pain. This is another trick that our minds play on us, and perhaps it is our mind that is the devil, the fallen angel of our own possibility. I decided that I would do... I decided that I would do it somewhere away where she wouldn't find me. Maybe nobody would. How did I get to this point? I had been unusually ambitious that morning. Now I saw no way out. One way. I left a note saying I'd run off to start a new life. My actual death would not hurt as much as the knowledge that I would cause harm, but the anger she would feel was my last attempt to save her, save myself. I overthink the good. I overthink the bad, or... Maybe it's not me who is thinking at all. I only know two feelings. Excitement, such as the hope of loving and being loved, and 
I know disappointment from acknowledging that those things don't exist for me. I started driving to the spot I had picked. The period ending the story that I was no longer in charge of riding. The roads were slick from the afternoon rainstorm. It might have been the excuse I made up for myself. All reason is an excuse when you're not driving your own thoughts, when you're betrayed by yourself. It wasn't just the rain. Tears ran down my face. I was, I was physically crying, but even my mind would not release full control of my body to let me experience this last physical sensation of emotion. Of course, this would do nothing for my reflexes, and it was really a depressing miracle that I even made it as far as I did. About halfway there, there was an old, narrow, two-lane bridge, the kind that is older than the world that gets built up around it, fitting... It was at this point the memory gets hazy, but how could one blame for not remembering the exact moment of impact? It's at this point the body gives full release to the mind, which is fully aware of the fact that it's about to free itself forever from its prison, the lump of flesh that we associate with self. The car hit a puddle, veered towards the side. I was gone. They found me later that day. It's hard to miss a car-sized chunk missing from the railing of an old bridge. It couldn't have taken them too long because the cold water made it hard to realize that it was already too late. Years too late. And yet, right on time. I should have been mad that even this final decision was taken from my hands. The irony was not lost on me. An irony that people subconsciously fear more than they realize. Most people's greatest fear of death isn't the dying. People are afraid of dying unfairly. If we only knew ahead of time that all deaths are the fairest ending that the living can achieve. For those thinking that I killed her, you would be wrong. I would never have laid a finger on her in anger. I loved her and would have died a million deaths before bringing any physical harm to bear. How could I have known that the mental anguish would eclipse any physical toll that a human could suffer? She returned from work early that day. She was beaming, with two secrets that she couldn't wait to reveal. During lunch, she had become extremely sick, what felt like an illness that had been worsening over the past several days. She excused herself from work to confirm that what she had hoped for what, what we had both hoped for, separately. She had made the decision, and unbeknownst to me, gone off her birth control this last month so that we could complete the family I had always wanted. As soon as her suspicions were satisfied, she called her job to tell them that she wouldn't be back. She was going to stay home, closer to me, a choice that, would, that most would have to think about. Not her. It was the brash sensibility and... Intense personality that had attracted to me, had attracted me to her in the first place. Who was I to believe that she would exercise restraint in the face of good news? The second surprise was that she had read a copy of an unfinished draft I had left out and knew that it would change our lives. If only I could have believed in myself the way she believed in me. I stole that from her. I was gone. Now there was nothing to believe in. When she arrived home and read the note, I was foolhardy to believe words could hide my true intentions from a soulmate closer than soulmates. A 
part of her had died. A part of her was gone, and just as my creativity fueled both art and fire, her passionate ferocity had the power to create glorious art and bring about total decimation. She poured herself a drink, and then another, and then another. She was not drinking to numb the pain. She drank so that her body could dance in step with her mind, or the shattered fragments that were left of the once beautiful idea of herself. When she had drunk all that her stomach could hold, she grabbed a knife and went and climbed in the bathtub, half filled it with water. The knife was not for her, but it would serve double duty. As gruesome as it may sound to those who have never felt such pain, it would be impossible to explain how merciful of a motive this was. This life that was meant to complete a picture now had no canvas to adorn, and she knew that the kindest thing was to prevent the eventual suffering that life brings to all of us. Even in pain, our actions fought to find the most compassionate possible, but when the body fights, the mind, the mind always wins, and there is no reprieve to be found from the cruelest master of all. The printing room of the Nashua Crier was busy. It was a small paper, but everyone working there worked as if it, New Hampshire was the whole world. Evelyn had taken the job right after graduating from journalism school in Boston, so it was not far from where she used to live. Sam, who was ten years her senior, walked in and dropped a piece of paper on Evelyn's desk. Strangest thing I've seen in ten years I've worked here, said Sam. I know we're not the biggest city in the country, but get a load of this. Evelyn looked down in the handwritten note. Just two? said Evelyn. It's a statistical anomaly, said Sam. A city this size? We should have a few more deaths, but yesterday, only two. At least, that anyone knows about. And it gets weirder. A couple? said Evelyn. The police report said they happened at different times. Her bodies were found at two different locations five miles apart. I'm assuming he killed her and then drove off and did himself? Evelyn asked. You'd think so, but the initial investigation saw no evidence of foul play. It's like they both just chose to kill themselves on the same day, a day that no one in the whole city of Nashua died. Not one senior, not one reported hospital death, nothing. That's really sad, said Evelyn. Found him in a car half sunk in the Nashua River. Her story is a little more gruesome. They're going to do an autopsy, but they found her in a bathtub at her house. Left her front door open, and the neighbor got worried. Walked upstairs to find her floating in a pool of her own blood. What angle are we going to run the story, Sam? Asked Evelyn. Hold off on the story for now, Sam replied. There's too many things we just don't know. Run their names and the notifications of the deceased tomorrow. I hope they had a good relationship. They can share the section all by themselves. The next day, the paper ran our names together on the eighth page of the second section. There was nothing spectacular other than the fact that we were there alone. It's likely no one ever noticed. The paper would print a small story several days later, but as small as the paper was, so was the police department. 
Their investigation found nothing to make the story any more interesting than the oddity of what most people would only see as a coincidence. It's okay. No detective would ever have been able to capture the full scope of what transpired. Only a writer or poet would be able to do the story such a story justice, but most of them are off planning their own demise chasing story. We're all at peace now. The errant mind draws its power from evoking fear or excitement. It wields the unknown as its weapon of choice, but once you answer the call of the void, both of those concepts are meaningless. My mind killed me. Our minds killed us both, thereby depriving themselves of their own hosts. When I was alive, I used to think that death was the most powerful truth of existence, and it is an unstoppable force. I can't help but wonder, though, it was a tragic love we had, born out of perfect harmony, and yet as our bodies lost their last ounces of life, one last time our names lay together. How are we to know that any of the things that we both wanted would have happened anyway. The world is dangerous, full of seemingly random events. They both accept the risk of the great unknown and forsaking the comfort of living, all in the name of never being apart, could in fact be more perfect love than anything found in the imperfect world of existence. My name is Death. Her name is love. And people will never understand until they meet both of us. We may, we may never be together again, but we will never be apart. The end.